The all-new Toyota RAV4 asks, what if? What if your ride was refined and rugged at the same time? Introducing the all-new RAV4 Hybrid. 208 combined horsepower and standard all-wheel drive make it the most powerful RAV4. Plus, with its head-turning style and breakaway speed, it's bound to change the way you think of a hybrid. The all-new RAV4 Hybrid. Toyota. Let's go places. Horsepower. Ratings achieved using the required premium melody gasoline with an octane rating of 91 or higher. Premium fuel is not used. Performance will decrease. This week, it's a conversation that was too hot for PodCon. A group of audio dramatists met at Ada's Technical Books in Seattle's Capitol Hill neighborhood to have an unsanctioned, unlicensed, super secret and very sneaky discussion about audio fiction, imposter syndrome, and a whole bunch more. This was a very exclusive event. We crammed into a little bookstore. There couldn't have been more than 40 of us in that tiny room. The event sold out pretty much immediately, but you know what? Information deserves to be free. You couldn't go to PodCon? You couldn't attend the Rogue panel? Guess what, bucko? Now you can. Look under your chair. Open your envelopes. Check this shit out. It's all right here for you on Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. As promised, this week we're featuring the Rogue panel. Ayla Taylor of the podcast Tides convened at Ada's Technical Books during 2019's PodCon in Seattle. My beloved friend Betsy Palmer recorded this panel with a shotgun mic in a frankly astonishing feat of arm and wrist endurance. If you didn't get to attend PodCon, this will feel like attending the full weekend all at once. If it's not your thing, that's okay. We'll be back to playing more audio dramas soon. You're going to hear seven different people throughout the course of this recording with interjections from folks in the audience. Those seven people are Ayla Taylor, convener of the panel and director of the audio drama Tides, Misha Stanton, sound wizard extraordinaire and co-founder of The Whisper Forge, Bridge Geen, sound designer for Tides and Arden, Lizette Alvarez, writer, actor, and creator of Kalila Stormfire's Economic Magic Services, Jordan Cobb, writer, actor, and creator of Giannis Descending and Here Be Dragons, James Oliva, writer of What's the Frequency, voice actor in a million audio dramas, the fact that James comes after Jordan will become important later, and Jeffrey Gardner, my longtime friend and a director with Heartlife NFP, the nonprofit theater group that created Our Fair City, the sci-fi podcast I worked on for five years. Settle in. Get comfy. This panel will keep you company throughout several loads of laundry, multiple commutes, or Sunday meal prep. Now, Ayla, you may speak. Uh, welcome, everyone, to an evening with audio drama creators. There's a lot of us up here. And there's a lot of you out there. Yes, and a lot of creators out in the audience. My name is Ayla Taylor. I'm uh, the producer, uh, co-director, and co-creator of Tides. I'm getting moderating, kind of. Uh, and I just want everyone, each person, to introduce themselves. Oh, also, my pronouns are she, her. Uh, introduce themselves, um, uh, anything about them, the pronouns, uh, the shows they work on, anything else. You, sorry with you, Misha. Great. Hi, I'm Misha Stanton. Uh, I am a podcast director, producer, and sound designer. I work mostly in immersive fiction, specifically The Bright Sessions, LeVar Burton Reads, and the products of The Whisper Forge. Their pronouns are they, them. Thank you. <laughs> my pronouns are anything that will get you to listen to my podcast. 
download numbers, I need them. Uh, I'm Bridget Gein. Bridge is what I usually go by. Um, I edit for Tides, and I've edited some episodes of Arden, and I will be returning to Arden for its second season. And also, I wrote some for uh, anthology. I have a mini-sode that's in the works for another podcast. And I am pleased to announce that I'm starting a new project with, uh... <laughs> I forgot oh. <laughs> Well, you're involved, and that's what matters. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> Ryan Estrada! It's been a long day, Bridget. Okay. <laughs> my pronouns are she, her. Let's move on. Hi, my name is Lisa Alvarez. I use they, them, and she, her pronouns. Lately, it's been the, the, they, them, or at least for tonight, just use that. I am the producer, writer, and main character in Kalila Stormfire's Economical Magic Services. Uh, and I'm also the main voice actor in Magic Kingdom. Um, lots of fun project and uh, do I get to say yeah okay I'm also going to be in, on, in caravan by the wish for forge I'm really excited yeah <laughs> hi everybody uh, oh sorry my name is Jordan Cobb uh, my pronouns are she her I am the oh god how do I properly phrase this the writer producer director and one of the lead actors, <laughs> so many hats, uh, for Here Be Dragons and also Giannis Descending. Yeah. Oh, it's my also, turn. Also, a lot of other shows you act. Oh my god, so many. So many. <laughs> I, over a dozen other shows I have guested on. It's a lot. No, if we do shows you've guested on, we'll be forever, here forever when we get to James. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Remember all the shows. <laughs> I don't. Actually, I have a spreadsheet that I've been working on. <laughs> all right, I'm James Oliva. I uh, I wrote and created uh, what's the frequency? Uh, I play, uh, play Michael uh, on Greater Boston, and uh, I'm likely on one of your shows. So <laughs> thank you. Uh, he, him, and uh, I'm gonna kick it over to Jeffrey. Hi, my name is Jeffrey Gardner. Uh, my pronouns are they, them. Uh, I am the executive producer of Our Fair City and the upcoming Unwell next month. Uh, I am also a voice director and uh, producer for Encyclopedia Britannica's Alexa series of games, which you'll see also maybe next month. <laughs> Terrifyingly. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, so how the panels is it, how the panel is going to be structured is each of us will ask a question to each of the others. I will I'm going to start. Um, my question is, what is the most unexpected obstacle you have come across while making an audio drama? And I'm going to say mine was definitely social media. I did not know how to do social media before this, and it's I still don't really, but I think I do an okay job. <laughs> um. For me, the most unexpected challenge of creating uh, Ars Paradoxica specifically was when one of our lead actors quit after season two. Um, he, st he straight up was, we had written plenty of season three and even season four content for him and told him as such when we cast him. And at the end of season two, uh, literally after a recording, he said, 
hey, I'm just not feeling it. And I'm like, and we, we were floored. He was one of our most beloved characters. He had such an iconic voice that was impossible to recreate unless we cast, like, Chris Parnell. <laughs> and, and we had to pivot on a dime to make sure we, I, I got out of him, like, can you please give us a couple of episodes to close out your plot lines? And he gave us that, and we really, m me and my entire writing team just pivoted on a dime. And I never saw that coming. Cool. Oh, wow. Yep. That's a nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I've had active nightmares about that. Yeah. 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 Fuck. I've been like, yeah. I got chills, actually. <laughs> so, I, I guess for me, it was actually, uh, which will tie in later when I get to my question. Uh, I came into audio drama with being a fan, so I suffer from a lot of imposter syndrome, and I'm like, shit, are these all parasocial relationships? No. <laughs> Ask Will. <laughs> I did. <laughs> Okay. I'm sure you got a good answer. <laughs> I mean, I, I trust Will with my life. Amen. <laughs> but also, there's still that deep-seated fear. Just, <laughs> that's been the toughest part. <laughs> um, for me, it was uh, getting over the obstacle of being praised for one episode and thinking that was my peak. Mm. Um, and similarly feeling like I'm about to fit to, to, to start season two of my show and also feeling like, oh shit, have I already hit my peak? So that's something I'm still dealing with. This is still, it's still a very real obstacle for me. Can I just, I'm gonna reiterate what I said on a panel earlier today at PodCon is that uh, you'll never make an episode that's worse than your first one. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the first one is always the worst and anything is always gonna be better. So. Mm, nice. And you're amazing. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Sean from Albuquerque. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's my turn. <laughs> Exciting. Um, this is a kind of hard thing to admit even to myself, let alone to a room full of colleagues and listeners and all that. But um. Working with friends is not always the best thing that you can do, and it is a very, you can sometimes find yourself in a difficult position, and sometimes friends will put you in a position that a professional colleague would not, and finding a way to professionally handle any situation that comes up, especially when you're dealing with people you are very close with and care about very deeply, um, just be, if you're going to go into something with your friends, be prepared for um, making decisions that may be incredibly difficult. Uh, good contracts make good neighbors. <laughs> Amen. But also making sure that you actually enforce and adhere to the contracts because a, a contract is a piece of paper. And if you don't do anything with that piece of paper and like actually have it exist in actuality in the world in the way that you are behaving with the people you work with it's a piece of can i swear yes okay it's a piece of goddamn paper <laughs> yeah. 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 
Well, I, you know, <laughs> one of the things that, that I felt like that, that was hard to learn was like there's no outsmarting uh, or per picking the perfect way or, or, over, or planning in a way in which that you're going to not encounter an obstacle that puts you behind. So there was a lot of like planning that went into my show and a lot of like specific things that was like, okay, we have this on the schedule and this and this and this. And I was like determined to not be in a situation where I was like in the month of the release of the episode and I'm scrambling to like do this, 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 and this, and then I'm coming up right at the release date with, with changes or, or <laughs> like I was like, no, no, I'm gonna beat that. I'm gonna beat that. I'm not gonna be that. And no. No, yeah. you're, not, you're not that no. smart. You're not. You're not that. Not that awesome. Like to, to to avoid something that's so inevitable. You can't plan for everything. You can't, you know, and you can't be hard on yourself for that either. You can't just look at it and be like, you know, like I'm a freaking idiot because I I didn't I didn't see that coming or I couldn't overcome it. Um, I think that's one of the one of those things that that's really kind of hard to kind of reconcile sometimes. You know. Yeah. yeah. So I think the biggest obstacle, <laughs> so we wrote season one of Our Fair City like 10 years ago, um, when we were all like <laughs> knee high on a grasshopper. <laughs> and um, we all, we, so we all, a lot of the original people who made Our Fair City all worked at a certain very large science museum in Chicago <laughs> together. Uh, and we were all really angry at capitalism and also our bosses. <laughs> and we were young and dumb, so we wrote specific references to our workplace all over that script. And so we like recorded some of it and then we're like, wait, we're gonna get fired. We can't call the evil corporate city state, you know, the name of our boss's office. Especially because he was like a hatchet man for daily, if any of you have been in Chicago, like, he literally knows where the bodies are. So we're like, we will maybe lose our jobs and our lives. So we wrote that a couple times for plausible deniability. That's so wow. incredible. <laughs> it was so dumb. It's a really good lesson. At least you, you avoided it. Yeah. yeah. All right, I think my question is up. And uh, what I want to know is I came into podcasting uh, after considering other careers in different related arts, as I'm sure many of us did. <laughs> and I found that a lot of my skills were able to cross over. But there were some things that I needed to learn about podcasting as a medium that once I learned them, made my work that much better. So what I want to know is, what can you do in a podcast, in a in a, in a piece of audio fiction that you can't do in theater, in TV, in film, in an audio book, mm -hmm. in a normal book, any other medium. What is specific to an audio fiction? And I guess I'll go first in matching your pattern. Yeah, and then like, uh, and then back. Yeah, and, and so the, my response to that is um, something that uh, Jeffrey's professor, Neil Verma, really loves to talk about in uh, audio fiction is the concept of semi-permanence in that when you're in audio your brain can register an object in the scene and have that object sort of disappear into the background of the scene like for example a character puts a prop down on a table and as the the scene continues you will tend to forget it because you can't see it in front of you 
such that when your characters bring that object back at the exact opportune moment, there's a moment of surprise, even though you knew that object was in the room the whole time. And it's a magic trick that you can only pull in audio fiction. Mm. So I've never actually been very good with the visual processing. So TV and movies have never actually, I mean, I, I can only see about this far in front of my face without glasses. Yeah. For the Bridge people at home, Bridge her glasses. Yeah, Bridge has removed her glasses and is holding her head very I, close to her face. I am blind! Objective evidence. <laughs> so, uh, when I actually started listening to audio dramas way back in the dark ages of 2014, when my friend came to me in the library and was like, you gotta listen to this weird show called Night Vale. <laughs> I discovered a medium that I could picture it all in my mind and I didn't have to worry about are my glasses positioned just right so that I can see what's going on. Cause like I could listen to a film with my eyes closed but I'd lose half the picture. In audio drama I don't have to worry about seeing cause the seeing is all done by my brain. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm gonna say this as, as a very personal thing that I feel uh, audio does for me and that is it has given me more freedom to put my story out there. Um, I think this is maybe more of a, a culture, the, the culture around audio drama um, has, has uh, allowed it to become more accessible. It is an accessible medium even more so than writing in some ways, especially traditional writing. Well, sure, because everything has, you know, publishing costs and, and yes. talking to editors, and film yes. has to do costumes and makeup, and in audio, yes. you have, like, three people. Exactly. <laughs> and the, the, that, that accessibility, and as someone, when I started off with, it was just me and a mic, and I, my own learning curve around Audacity. Um, <laughs> it, was, it was freeing because it was all mine. It was something that I could truly own. Um, and I think that... I couldn't find when I was in theater, when I tried out some some television, like college television, when I uh, tried writing and pitching a novel, um, uh, tried poetry, none of that. Was, uh, um, even uh, 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 spoken word, like all of that, none of that gave me the real feeling of freedom and control over my own creative spirit and path that audio drama did. I really love that. Um, I get to follow that. <laughs> I mean, you did that to me like before, so. Hey. Come um, So, and this does sort of touch back to the world of the parasocial, but I do think that audio drama has kind of created a space where you can live the story. More so, I... I am an intensely empathetic person. Um, so it is very easy for me to fall into the world of any story that I am watching, that I am reading. God, you should see me reading a book on a train because I yell at the characters. <laughs> um, and people on the New York subway do not appreciate that. <laughs> Fun fact. Um, but, but audio drama, because it is such a deeply intimate way of speaking 
to your audience and also receiving a story from storytellers, I find that it feels like there is less of a barrier, physical or otherwise, between myself and the story, which is both a blessing and a curse. Um, but you know, with television, you have the physicality of the screen. When you're reading a book, it's pages or an, another screen if you're reading an e-book. It's um, when you're in the theater, you can't walk up on the stage. And granted, you Not can't, you know, <laughs> it doesn't go well. We don't like it. Please don't. Um, and while you can't necessarily put yourself into the audio drama itself, like, you can talk to the characters, they won't talk back most of the time. <laughs> Please note, for those James. of you listening at home, I am pointing at James Oliva. Um, but it is so intensely intimate because you find yourself falling into the world of the story because it is so deeply immersive. When it's done as brilliantly as I have heard some audio drama done, and like some independent audio drama done, you are in that story. You exist as, an, as another pair of eyes, as another physical body in that space. And it makes that story so much more powerful. Okay. It, it's funny, because I spent a lot of today talking about, oh, the intimacy of the podcasting medium, but I think it, it, you, what you said really strikes home because it's like being fiction almost amplifies that intimacy somehow. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well, I think I think uh, one of the things that I instinctually go towards have touch on both what Misha and, and Jordan were saying is that you're deprived of something uh, that you usually use as a crotch sensory wise when you're looking at film or TV. Um, that um, audio dramas sort of ask uh, maybe just a little bit more of you. Um, but there are things in us that instinctually sort of fill in the blanks, you know, uh, you know, with, when it comes to objects and sort of them disappearing and then being able to come back and whatnot. But I find that the medium itself sort of helps and lends itself to um, taking a little step beyond maybe what you would buy into or uh, suspend your disbelief for, for when it comes to maybe something you're visually watching um, uh, under certain circumstances. So. You, know, you might be able to take a, a listener on a journey that, that you might not be able to get away with uh, in a visual sense, even though there are ways to do it. Um, because I think there's something in the way that, and I try to think about it this way when it comes to trying to tackle that problem, is, is thinking about it like music, and we tend to follow music, and, and, and sometimes we'll even find ourselves listening to music and not really listening to the meaning of the song anymore and it, how it reflects into us. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that you can do in this medium that's different because when you're bombarded with something that's visual, it tends to sort of override what it is that, that you could be experiencing otherwise. And I think that's the advantage that we have is, is that we're pulling you back into your own head and giving, you know, making you think and making you sort of experience it and everyone's having a different experience. And I think that's what makes it uh, wholly unique and beautiful. You know, I actually want to build on that a little bit. Um, there's a kind of an old saying um, that uh, vision goes in the front door while sound sneaks around the back. Mm -hmm. um, nice. <laughs> right? Well, and I think that is a really wonderful thing that we get to do. We get to be 
in people, like kind of invade people's brains and control them. Where is Gavin when you need him? Where is the Red Light Library? Stop. I'm a co-host of Red Light Library. Let's not go there. No, no, but it it, it gets to be uh, deeply personal and and deeply collaborative in a way that like very few other mediums get to be. Um, I guess like I'm gonna call myself out here and like again after like ten years I finally get to fix this mistake. Um, we we start every episode of Our Fair City say with a narrator saying, "Dear policies," uh, because we came from a theater background where we were talking to an audience, and that's not how people listen to podcasts. And if, if we had changed that on the first day to Dear Policy, like, mm-hmm. if that story is suddenly a grand epic tale being told just to you, like, wow, yeah. that's so cool. Uh, so we missed that, but we'll get it right next time. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so my thing is probably a little less lovelyly put <laughs> as all of your guys uh, but the thing I love the most and it's kind of a comedic thing is and I think is greatest is how easily you can hide information from the listener <laughs> you can hide so much and then reveal it at the right time it's not something we've done a huge amount though I want to do more of it um, but I've seen it done in so many shows where it's just like you don't know, like something's something's going on, but you're not really sure what it is, and then when it's revealed, you're just like, whoa, and you would have been able to see it in any other meetup, meetup it would have been much harder to hide that. And I think that's something I I really just like, as like a storytelling and as, as, the, as listening, and I always love unreliable things and not knowing, <laughs> uh, so, I love being able to trick your audience. <laughs> I guess it's my turn for the question. My question ties into what I said before. Uh, with award season having just come and gone. Bridge um, <laughs> <laughs> one, best audio engineering for a new dramatic pod. Uh, new dramatic Imposter syndrome is something I'm sure a lot of us have faced at some point or another, and I've just been kind of wondering how other people have dealt with that because I know that I've probably been dealing with it rather poorly. <laughs> I don't know. You're on this panel with us. You're doing okay. <laughs> I guess I'm up. Um, a large amount of my imposter syndrome is is tied to kind of me competing against myself. Um, and again, kind of calling back what I said before of, of whether or not I've reached my peak. Um, I, I went through a really rough patch of writer's block a month ago and had to take a break. That was rough thinking that you have nothing else to give is really rough. Sorry. No, I'm getting actually emotional. I've drank too much. All right. Um, and the, the, the fact that um, the creative process is an ebb and flow and having to actually... I've been, I've, 
been given a tissue. That's for the audience is at home. Thank you. Thank you. Um, the, the fact that as creatives, there is, at the end of the day, the only people, the only person that you feel like you're responsible to is yourself. Um, and that's really hard. And your, your, your deepest critic is yourself. One of the things that I write about uh, explicitly in Kalila is how we sabotage ourselves. And that for me, <laughs> thank you, Rich. I'm giving a, getting a hug by Rich, which is lovely. Um, is, is standing up to that voice in your head saying that you're not enough, that your creative ideas aren't enough, that nobody's going to want to listen, and countering that and saying, no, I am. I want to listen, at the very least. I want to listen to what I have to say. At least for that's that, uh, and and I know plenty of people will talk probably talk about how community helps with that and how um, therapy helps with that. <laughs> but uh, that's that really is a crux, and uh, I'm not going to apologize for crying because I've been told I need to start keep getting in touch with my feelings and with my therapist. <laughs> so <laughs> touch them, just touch just, them. Just, just look, look, all oh, this feelings dro like dropping down my face. <laughs> Here they are. All right, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, I personally struggle with this a lot, and I don't know that I have found a way to handle it. Um, I, I'll tell this as a funny story because it is kind of a funny story, but it you know, is kind of how I go through my life, which is not necessarily the best, but here we are. Um, so I was on a panel at official non-rogue PodCon, <laughs> and I got an email from Hank Green asking me to be on said panel. Uh, and I woke up in the morning and I looked at this email and I said, hmm, sounds fake. <laughs> and I went back to bed. <laughs> and several hours later, I woke up again, and I looked at this email again, and I was like, oh no, that's actually there. I should respond to this. And proceeded to be nervous about that right up until 5.30 this evening when I actually had to go on stage, and then a little bit past then. Um, I find that my inner self-critic and my own sense of imposter syndrome comes from a sense of feeling smaller than I am. Mm. That all of the accomplishments that I have made, even just having people come up to me and say, hey, I listened to your show, is so alarming and confusing <laughs> for me. <laughs> because I'm like, no, we didn't, we didn't hit 15,000 downloads. That's my dad listening to this 15,000 times. I love my mom. She's not listening to my mom. My dad listens aggressively, and I would not put it past him. So it's finding ways to tell myself that I don't know a better way to phrase this than, but that I do exist in this realm. 
and that I am all that I have achieved is I may not be able to physically touch it. It may just be a number on a screen or it may be a person saying a kind word over social media or something like that or days like today when I am so so insanely lucky and I get to meet people in person and have conversations with them which does not happen very frequently with what we do, we all know. <laughs> you rarely get to actually talk to a physical, actual person who tells you that they have listened to your thing and that your thing is good and that they like it. Um, but that it's finding new ways every single day to remind myself that I, air quotes for those at home, physically exist in the realm of podcasting, that it is real and people are receiving it. You take up space. That I take up space. Mm -hmm. Yes, you do. <laughs> and again, see, and James just said, you do, and, and, and Lisette just said, you do, and my immediate response was to hunker down in my chair, <laughs> and my brain went in a just really high-pitched voice, do I? <laughs> I do. The, I am here. For the listeners at home, I am now giving Rashida. Yes. I physically exist. You do. You do, Jordan. We love you. Thank you. You're not a ghost. We would have covered that in Spirits Podcast Live Show. <laughs> Julia Shabini would have told me if I was a ghost. <laughs> she knows. I don't know. I don't think she'd want to break the news to you. Don't, please don't do that to me. I'm paranoid as shit. <laughs> I don't have imposter syndrome, no. Um. <laughs> That's the energy I want to take into 2019. <laughs> no, no, you know, I, I deal with my own in a, in a different way. Like, I, I don't, um, it's weird. I, I kind of battle it by, um, when I'm by myself, I'm like, you're fucking amazing. <laughs> um, and you can do that thing, and then I do the thing, and then I, I sit around and I'm like, what is everyone else saying? Um, and then the second I hear uh, a compliment or, a, or something positive, I'm just like, you're lying. It's not true. You know, like, oh, you're awesome. No, I'm not, you know? Um, so there's always this battle going on of like, you know, uh, by myself, I'm like hyping myself up to do the thing. And then uh, when I get the response that you all crave and want, um, there's this, this sort of knee-jerk reaction of like, no, no. No, you're just being nice. You're just being nice. That's not real. That's not real. You're just this. This is like you know the the equivalent of just you know like you know how are you doing today? And if you were to go like I'm terrible, and people are like no, that's not really what I was asking. <laughs> <laughs> I was just saying like hi. Oh boy. You know what I mean? Like like that's the thing that happened. That's happening to me. Like as people are like oh I love your show and. I'm, I'm, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> or is this over yet? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if there's like a real way around it. I, I think it's just eventually somehow understanding that you know. I think it's always going to come up in levels. So you're going, you're always going to get to some level. Maybe if you're successful enough, or or, or even somehow uh, lauded enough in one way that you might accept an aspect of it. But there's always going to be the next aspect that that you're not quite buying into yet um, as you go on whatever journey you're on as you or if you're excelling or, or whatnot um, or as you as you get better at what you're doing um, there's always that next level where somebody's like oh now you do that great and you're like no 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 um, yeah I, I don't know if there's a if there's anything that, that you 
you can do. I mean, the, the reality is is that you, you do have value, and what you're doing has value. Um, uh, and and I truly believe that about everyone else's stuff. So I'm always like, I really want to communicate that as much as possible. Uh, when when uh, I meet other people and I and I and I encounter their work and and whatnot. Um, and everyone up here is, is amazingly awesome and, and beautiful. Um, no, it's true. It's true. No, every single one of you are, are, are absolutely amazing, um, and I, I'm incredibly lucky to be up here with you. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think I think it's just always a battle. I think I think it's once once you're there and you have it, it's I don't think it ever just like checks out one day and leaves. You know, it always rears its head somewhere. You just gotta battle it. Woof. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Imposter syndrome does not go away. Um, uh, like there, there is not a number of zeros after that download number that will make it go away. Um, and I think uh, for y'all theater people, um, uh, Anne Bogart has an amazing quote about. She says every time she goes into a rehearsal room for the first day. She feels like, surely someone will realize that I'm not qualified to be here. <laughs> I'm like, holy fuck, Van Bogart is. Um, I, yes, I have so much imposter syndrome every day. And so far, the way I've dealt with it is, I guess I'm going to jump in on community here. Mm -hmm. um, we, at Heartlife NFP, we've always done things with a lot of people. Um, we were big on collaboration and... Um, you know, no good idea goes unchallenged. And I have so much imposter syndrome around myself, but like I'm looking around and we've like, on our next show, we've got um, Eli McElveen and Anna and Misha uh, and Ryan Sheely, who is landing planes in uh, Chicago for no money. So, end the shutdown. I look at these amazing designers and I have no imposter syndrome about them. And I look at our incredible writer's room and I think, yeah, like they're doing great work. And so like, it, I, I find that like, I, I believe in the people that I have the amazing good fortune to work with so hard. And I, if I can't feel good about my own work, at least I can feel like, holy shit, I get to hang out in a room with these people. Um, and when I meet someone who I'm like, oh, you're so much better, you're amazing, I hire them. <laughs> <laughs> and that's yes. great so far. That is exactly how it went down, actually. <laughs> <laughs> that's literally how it happened. <laughs> uh, so yeah, um, find good people and work with them. Like, that's, that's what I found. For me, I definitely relate to, especially what James and Je Jeffrey just said, because I have a very similar process to James there. Uh, I can hype myself up a lot. <laughs> but if someone compliments me, I still won't believe them. <laughs> um, and like, like Jeffrey said, I, I mean, I work with some amazing uh, people, both actors and like, Bridge and, and, and Jesse, our writer. And so I'm able to hype them up. And so if I believe that their work is great, I don't care that I, I'm like, I have the imposter syndrome about what I'm doing, but I know what they're doing is great. So when people compliment the show, I like, oh, well, they're complimenting them. <laughs> I, it's not, I, I ignore the parts that I do. Um, but I think I found a moderately okay way that I deal with it in that I, 
make sure to look backwards. I, I feel like a big part of the imposter syndrome, syndrome is you're always looking forward at the people you see that are doing better than you and the people who have been doing it better and are doing it longer and are getting more publicity. But I think you need to, in order to place yourself accurately, you need to look backwards and part of that is seeing how you can help the people that aren't as well established as you, don't have as much downloads, don't have as much of an established situation. And I think doing that helps your imposter syndrome because it places you accurately in how you're doing, how people perceive you. And when you see how you can help other people, it helps you realize, I can help them because I actually, I actually do know how to do that thing. I, I am kind of good at that. And, and I feel like it also means that you're not just constantly inaccurately, you're not just constantly comparing yourself to people who are better than you. You're comparing yourself to, I mean, you're not, it doesn't turn into comparing yourself. It's, it's more about, Seeing where, see, like, kind of placing yourself rather than comparing you're comparing yourself to people, and I think that's that's helped me personally a lot in kind of figure out. And when I try to I try to focus on seeing how new shows, how I can help them, and how I can um, learn what I do know. And I'm like, wait, I do know things, and how I do know those things, and how I can help other people. Mm. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Mine's just gonna be short and sweet. Uh, I realized a while back that everyone feels imposter syndrome, and that's how I combat it. And that um, <laughs> if everyone's an imposter, you may as well just make a show anyway and just put it out for whatever. Yeah. 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 Just fucking make art. Yeah. We need like, it. Like everyone is, everyone is feeling imposter syndrome, and if they're not. That's probably a problem in its own right. Um, and if everyone's an imposter, just make your thing anyway. Like, who cares? <laughs> All right, I guess my question is up. Um, I'm asking this question largely because of the way, uh, like I mentioned before, how I came into audio drama and how I found it such a, a profound um, a sense of freedom with it. Uh, how did you choose audio as your medium for this, the whatever specific story that you wanted to bring into the world. Um, I know for me, I, uh, I had fell, fallen in love with audio drama beforehand and until I got to a point where as I was listening to show upon show upon show, I started getting that little voice in my head saying, you could do this, you could do something like this, you would do this if you were doing this, and decided that, okay, I'm gonna try it out. Um, how did you, how did you come into this medium, and why is this medium so important to your story? So, um, I've told this story a couple of times, just talking about how I got started with Here Be Dragons. Uh, one of my best friends in the world, Christina, and I uh, went and saw. Uh, Basically, they were doing radio play versions of H.P. Lovecraft stories, and we'd been talking and talking and talking for the entirety of the time that we knew each other, um, which was a solid three and a half years at that point, uh, about how much we loved audiobooks and how much we wanted to sort of do radio plays and that sort of thing. And we were walking home, and she's like, we could totally do one of these. And I was like, Okay, and at the time I had a, uh, a project that I needed to do for class 
This was a screenwriting class, mind you. <laughs> um, but I had to write a scene. And the scene that I ended up writing is the very first scene of Here Be Dragons, and I just translated it purely because it was something that I wanted. Um, and it wasn't until I was actively working on Here Be Dragons, which was really interesting because it's the first project I ever actively finished writing. Uh, I never managed to make it from beginning to end on something, but this was the first project I finished. I f fell into audio drama because it was so easy to let anything happen. Um, and that it's, it's deeply important for the types of shows that I do, I can't actively go to space and film things. <laughs> and it would be really hard to like find the creatures in the Bermuda Triangle that I have decided live there. <laughs> I don't have the budget for a submarine from World War II. <laughs> um, yet. Yet. Listen. really Next goal. That would I would I would go and actually record something on a submarine in the middle of the Bermuda Triangle if someone gave me enough money on Patreon. <laughs> and you can quote me on that. <laughs> you should put it on there. Come but, to Chicago, I can hook you up with the submarine part. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually not kidding. <laughs> Don't do that to me because I have family in Chicago. <laughs> we'll talk after. <laughs> Exciting. But also, be wary of what you offer on Patreon. Because yeah. Yeah. you have to give that shit out. out. <laughs> yeah, as some real. of you might know, I was responsible for Wolf 359 reaching its price in Carter goal. Yeah. Thank you for that. We all wanted it so badly. <laughs> And Gabriel made fun of me when I said, when Price and Carter comes out. <laughs> <laughs> and oh, how wrong, wrong that whole team was. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to make happen? Yeah. I have some requests. You're next. <laughs> <laughs> You'll write Price and Carter also? <laughs> sure, if she likes. Yeah. <laughs> just, you know, so esoteric, just the Price and Carter of what's the frequency. Oh, no. I don't know <laughs> I've forgotten the question already, so let's move on to James. Um, I, the, the question was more or less like what drew, drew us to telling our story in, in audio drama, right? Yeah, yeah you know, um, you know, I came from a, I, I've always been writing, so I never had like a, a specific thing that I ever was like, this is the thing that I do, I only do this. So, you know, poetry or playwriting or, or screenwriting, and screenwriting was only the more recent iteration of what I've been doing. Um, so, you know, I've been plugging away and, and just trying to do something with, with scripts, and th that, it's incredibly hard. Um, so, I've always had a strong connection to music and, and, and sound and stuff like that. So, um, it wasn't so much that I came from this place of like, you know, like, oh my God, podcasts. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't there um, uh, ingesting all these podcasts. I, you know, I grew up... Um, I grew up loving like like vaudeville records and like listening to Ed Berger, Ed, Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy or uh, you know um, some of the other uh, types of old timey radio stuff. So we, I was aware of it and I knew its its functions. Um, and I knew that when it came time to sit down and make a podcast, though, that it, it seems logical that you'd go, well, 
okay, we need to concentrate on sound, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Where I, I think sometimes that does get missed. And so like, I, I, I think the attraction was this concept that, that feeds into what I was, what we were talking about before, about one of the things that you can do, that you can't do in other mediums is, is sort of um, take somebody on a journey um, and sometimes even get them a little lost in their head. Um, and uh, thinking about um, something a little bit deeper than just um, you know uh, you know the A B C and D of of the story, um, and I think there's a lot to that 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 comes from uh, from being able to work in the medium. So I think there, and I also like the idea of of using that type of abstraction to disorient and uh, <laughs> and to certainly make you question you know. Uh, certain amount of perception and what you're hearing and, and what you're perceiving um, within a story. And I think that's something that lends itself very, very, very well to something that's, you know, where you're, you basically can't see anything. You have to just sort of rely on what you're hearing. And I think there's something powerful in that, so, yeah. Um, I'm going to give a very short flippant answer and then an actual one. Um, we make audio drama because there's 12 inches of snow in Chicago right now. And like, I was doing live theater and being like, hey friends, come out. They were like, it's negative 20 outside. No. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you know what, that's fair. I don't want to leave my home either. Um, more seriously. Uh, right now, uh, and for the last two and a half years, we've been building a story um, that is ostensibly about ghosts, but is actually about memory and losing it, and about family and losing it and reconnecting with it, um, and about you know where <clears throat> many of us are uh, when our parents are um, getting old and are losing their memories and losing their functions. And um, and I think that audio, as, as, as James was saying, has the ability to disorient and has the ability to be ambiguous in a beautiful way. And, and the audio-only medium allows us to put the listener in a place where they understand um, what these people are going through in returning to uh, your home and finding things that are not quite right or seeing someone that you know you should recognize because they're your daughter but you can't remember anything about them um, and getting into that really intimate thought space with the listener is just something audio drama does so well and um, so that's why our story really needs to be an audio drama, I think. I kind of, we kind of developed our story into working with the audio. It was originally based off a short story, but kind of similar to Lizette, I got really into listening to audio drama. I, I mean, I was working a really boring office job, so I was listening to audio drama all day. <laughs> and it was actually, it was Ars Paradoxica and The Strange Case of Starship Iris that I credit for inspiring me. Um, because I love both of them, and they made me realize, wait, this is something I could do. <laughs> and it was really the fact that it was, like, kind of like the accessibility, the fact that it was something I could do, and I felt like I could make it. We kind of... Because I didn't come from an arts background. I, I don't have any theater training except for like 
working lights in high school theater. <laughs> um, and um, I don't have any theater background. I, I, me and my, my co-creator come from a science background. And I've never com completed a creative project. I've never done anything that people have seen, except for like a few fan fiction that no one's ever going to see. <laughs> <laughs> now I need to see it. Yeah. No. You're not going to try to relatable. No. So real. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but like, I've never even finished those, so I mean. <laughs> uh, but like, actually knowing that it's something I could make and like, it has been incredible, just like making something. And, and it kind of, we worked it into the audio medium. Like we, I developed a really profound respect for the audio medium, so I, we made our story work. And so yeah. <laughs> No. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, Tithe, so Tithe was a short story that I wrote when we were in college. Um, <laughs> the thing was, it was written, it was a written story, but it was like transcribed audio logs. So, but I didn't realize that like audio or like radio plays or like audio drama was a thing that people still did. Um, so we were like, it was like, oh, we, I've listened to these uh, shows and like, like you could actually turn the story into something that's actually writ uh, out loud or like said out loud um, and that was uh, something that hadn't really occurred to me so like, yeah. I think with us we really needed uh, you know the team of us working together to to make that happen yeah. Um, and yeah and yeah like like she said we come from science background so like I don't know about uh, screenwriting or, or uh, uh, writing really writing scripts at all or uh, doing things like that I know about biology stuff a little bit um, <laughs> but uh, I have a bachelor's degree, but uh, that's, uh, but yeah, and uh, it really gave me freedom to make something that uh, was, you know, using that knowledge and uh, uh, making something cool with a lot of different people. So that's cool. um, I have a, a strangely like technical answer to this question. <laughs> uh, so I've actually been in audio since I was 13 years old. Wow. Um, wow. I was trained at a Montessori arts camp <laughs> for many years. Um, and when I got there, uh, one day, like I, it was my first year, I, I was 12 years old, and uh, someone I was hanging out with a lot at the time uh, said to me, hey, you should come after one of the theater plays one night and take the lighting down, they let you stay out past put to bed. Yeah. <laughs> so I did, and I fell in love, and I fell in love with stage lighting first, and then um, at this camp, for some dumb reason, lighting and sound was the same shop. I don't know why. To this day, I worked, I went back there 10 years later to work there, and I still don't know why. Um, so while I was there, you know, most kids either fell into lighting or sound, and I seemed to be the only kid who really wanted to do both. The only problem being that sound worked during the day and lighting worked at night because they were outdoor theaters and that was the only time you could see the lights. So I ended up not sleeping a lot <laughs> and getting very sick. And, and I was about 15 and the, my, I was a, a CIT at this point, a counselor in training, and my, my counselors, my bosses were like, listen, you are destroying yourself trying to do this. You need to pick one. And I picked sound. And I was trained in sound and I went to college for sound and in college, a writer friend of mine 
had an idea inspired by the television show Lost, <laughs> which had in it a number station, which is a radio station which broadcasts someone reading a random string of numbers that is, an, it turns out, a code. Uh, these are based on real things. They've been around since uh, the 1940s. They stopped right around the end of the Cold War. You can probably figure it out. <laughs> uh, a couple of them are still in England, a couple in Russia. Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, so so uh, my writer friend knew I was an audio person and came to me with, what if we put up a fake number station? What if we broke into the college radio station and put it out in the middle of the night? And literally, through six years of development and teasing it out and teasing out, that's Ars Paradoxica. <laughs> and now that, and then I made Ars Paradoxica and then we hired more writers who had their own idea for shows. So I got into it in a very technical way. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't actually work on any shows that are, are mine. <laughs> I work on Ties with Jesse and Ayla and that, that started uh, because Ayla asked for someone to edit the trailer uh, I was actually approached to edit Arden. Uh, there is the... Uh, and the mini-sode I'm working on was a joke on Twitter that went into my DMs and was like, do you want to do that? And I was like, hell yeah, I want to do that. By the way, if you just get back to me on those edits... <laughs> Damn. Called oh, out. That was incredible. Uh, <laughs> I think I've been called that a couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But uh, I, I actually technically kind of started, so way back in 2011, there were these video games called Professor Layton. <laughs> and uh, some of my, my friends decided they would do unofficial character uh, voice logs, or, uh, what's the word? Audio, Audio logs. No, voicemails. Got it. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, so, like, they would treat, it was all done on Tumblr, they'd treat asks as, like, people calling in, and so they'd be like, ah, I'm Herschel Layton. And then I was like, I want to do that. <laughs> so I tried that. I got audacity. I followed all their instructions on how to do it. I made exactly two things and then decided no. <laughs> no, I don't want to write and do my own stuff. <laughs> so uh, I, I kept all my knowledge of audacity because I kept messing around in it for a while. Uh, I did an unofficial, like, short audio drama kind of thing for the comic Property of Hate, which if you know me on Discord, that's where my icon is from. <laughs> and uh, after doing that, I kind of kept with it, and then audio drama came around, and then Ayla happened. And I was like, yeah, yeah you know, I, <laughs> wild day. Yeah, I, I, I love hope that to be my, like, uh, what I'm known for. Ayla happened. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest is kind of now I'm here, which is wild. <laughs> yeah. Your questions is my turn for a question. So because we are all in some way, shape, or form creators, I personally find I love world building when I'm creating a script. 
Um, but there's something intensely magical about when it moves from the script to being an actual thing. So my question is, what is your favorite part of breathing life into some into the world that you have built? Oh, um, you're gonna go first. I guess I probably should. Because <laughs> you, I you don't have to. Didn't yeah. prepare. <laughs> <laughs> you're just curious. I, yes, I didn't think no, that no, far ahead. Okay. Um, I'll go. No, no, wait, I've got it. I think my no, favorite part... No, it's too late, James. You had your, moment. You had your shot and you missed it. Lin-Manuel would be disappointed. Oh. It's just going to be constantly called us. Damn. Be, Damn. I'm going to get dragged. Sorry, I started. <laughs> no, you're not. But my favorite part about breathing life into something that, um, something that I've written or created is hearing my own words back from other actors in ways that are deeply surprising, but that also illuminate something either about the text or about myself that I didn't realize that I'd put down on the page. That there's something about finding your story after it's already out in the world and having other people, even, even if it's, um, whether it's you know actors or listeners or whatever, but having other people tell you what your story is. That <laughs> you thought it was one thing, but oh God, that's just the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> now you can speak, James. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's good, I need that. <laughs> Keep you in line. <laughs> I do, I need to keep in line. Um, you know what, I like, um, I, I like the aspect of world building when it, when it comes to um, I like when I write, I like being able to have the freedom to uh, discover things. So I like discovery. So um, I like having a character sort of allude to stuff that I can later go back into and, and, and sort of tease out and then make maybe possibly into something else. And I can just leave those little Easter eggs all over the place for myself to kind of go back and, and, and make them into something. And I think that's kind of like the fun, one of the fun parts for me at least. You know, like, and I know it could ends up being possibly fun for fans to, to have you go back and do a callback to something that seemed like, a, you know, just a one-off. Um, but then to actually go ahead and, and make it something that's important is, is sometimes really super fun, especially when you weren't sure what you were looking at at the moment. And it sort of just became intuitive and, and you put it in there. And I think that's one of the, one of the special things about world building is, is that aspect of just how detailed it makes that, that environment and how lived in it makes that environment and how special it can be. Um, so our new show is set, uh, the first season is set almost entirely in a uh, an old boarding house in uh, in the middle of rural Ohio, and we've spent the last uh, like two and a half years developing this world and uh, these concepts and uh, a a roster of characters and um, the rules of how the supernatural and the not supernatural and everything works, and it was all delightfully theoretical and fun and ephemeral and then um our lead sound designer ryan ryan Sheely, um as a way of cementing the identity of the house for our big design team um designed an audio tour of the house where 
he awesome. drove up in a car and was like, oh, hey, well, I'm just driving up the house. Oh, oh, here I come over the hill and up. Oh, I'm parking out front and walked through each room. And uh, we heard, you know, the sound change. Did you reach your house out? Oh, just that, like, I received this because I I did an episode on, of Unwell. It was the most incredible thing I've ever seen a team leader do. <laughs> it, like, it was paired with a video of the ground plan of the house as it was drawn. And as he's walking through, there's like a dot that you can follow as he walks through the house and out onto the outer deck and back into the kitchen and up the stairs. It's incredible. I've never seen anything like it. It's it's wild. Um, And, you know, he, he does things like comes up to the master bedroom and, oh, it's locked. We don't go in there this season. I didn't design it. Um... But really, honestly, one of the moments of that is is he he takes you into the basement and says, "Oh, and I think," and a door creaks open and you hear a roar. He says, "Oh, that's the furnace room," and it was I don't know who remembers seeing Home Alone for the first time as a child <laughs> and that like deep bone deep terror of that furnace and suddenly I was there again uh, but but going from the moment of like this is this this is this thing that like has existed in our brains and oh wouldn't it be cool if this thing and then suddenly after two and a half years it was concretely real and I was hearing someone walk through this house that I had imagined for so long was wow. just magical it was so cool Wow. <laughs> that sounds awesome. <laughs> For me, my favorite part of world building is character building. And my favorite part of character building is coming up with the contradictions in the characters. Ooh. To the point where when me and Jesse talk about all of the characters we write, we literally go, they're this, but they're this. They're this, but they're this. And we like, it's almost like, we plan it out of the different characters. We're always like, we can't, we, I find to making complex characters, you just, and which is my favorite thing about it is how to write all these characters, how to get all, I, I don't write, but I edit and help. Um, and uh, how to talk about these characters, to make them real, you have to think of the way they're, they're messy. And thinking of the ways that everyone's messy is my favorite part. And also, like, we have the discord with, the, with all of our actors, and sometimes we get into really silly discussions about the characters where it'll be like, what is, I don't remember, what we talk about, like, what's their favorite drink, or what's their favorite, you know, we like, talk about just, like, among each other, like, uh, just, like, different little details about the characters, and that's my favorite part, just when we discuss the different little like silly things that'll never actually make it into the show, but knowing that about the characters actually like I like all Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's and, and that the but the really the big thing is the contradictions. I love developing how trying to figure out how these characters are messy. Yeah. I'm sorry as one as one of my actors and I'm really sorry. It's been a long day. Can you please repeat the question so I can answer it like super accurately? Um, yeah, but ba- basically, um, when we go from creating to breathing life into the project, what is your favorite part about? Sure. That? Okay. So 
Um, I am the director, producer, sound designer of The Whisper Forge, and almost all the other members of The Whisper Forge are writers. And that is because I have learned that I'm not the best writer among the group. And I, I leave it to them to come up with the, the seeds of the idea, and I am better at taking it from the initial script to the conclusion. So, taking it from the world building to real life is my entire job. And it's, I mean, it's, it's entirely what I love about it. Um, but my favorite thing is um, when I go in to direct a scene, I, I like to say that I, I know before any actor says a single line, I know exactly what I want it to sound like. I know exactly how I want them to say things. I know exactly the intonation I want them to use, the punctuation, the pauses, everything. Until the moment an actor does it better. <laughs> that single moment where you know what you're looking for and then they do something that you didn't even think about that makes it ten times better than what you had been planning all week. And you go, oh yeah, like that, that one was it. Let's move on. Um, that, that moment that reminds me that this is, even though podcasting can be very solitary, and like, I, I don't mean to bring down single character shows like, you know, Kalila Strumpire and uh, most of Giannis Descending. Yeah. Like, those are incredible shows because of how solitary and single it can get, but that, like, that's why I love how collaborative my podcast can be, is that, like, I think I'm the one in charge until someone gives me something that I didn't expect and turns the entire thing. Like, it reminds me that it's not just mine, that it's everyone's, and by that measure, it makes the entire thing so much better. So, uh, I'm the editor mostly, so I get the world building, and then I create the world through sound, and if, if I could go back, <laughs> And maybe one day far in the future, I will. I would definitely focus more on the world around the character. Because originally when I started Tides, I was like, all right, so we're hearing this from inside her suit, so we won't hear a whole lot of the outside world. And then I did stupid things like I didn't muffle the water or the birds. <laughs> <laughs> So they all sound like they're in the space with her with nothing between them. So then towards the end when she takes her helmet off, other than slightly more sound, there's no difference. Episode 5, when Yaris hides in the snailian shell. Oh, the is, <laughs> That's when I, when I was designing that, I was like, I should have been doing this all along. What the, what's wrong with me? <laughs> And then for Arden, most of the episodes I did either took place in a room or in the forest. I was like, all right, slap some birds and trees. <laughs> <laughs> slap some walking sounds in there. Spit them out. Oh my God. Make sure it lines up. Listen to it five more times to make sure it's good. Send it in. Get 20 notes back. Cry a little. <laughs> we were so big. <laughs> I always feel bad how mean I am to Brit. I hate it. I'm sorry, Brit. <laughs> 
And then, <laughs> just a collective apology from all of us to all of our sound designers. <laughs> Julia Shabini, if you. you're listening, I love you and I'm sorry. I, I don't I don't pity Alex at all. <laughs> Alex can handle it. Yeah, he absolutely can. He's been dealing with me for like 30 years. <laughs> and then the one time I did actually write something. I didn't get to do most of the world building because I was like, it's Lovecraftian, go with Lovecraft. And I was like, all right, <laughs> yep. that's a world already built. I'll just go with my biggest fears, isolation, not knowing if anyone's paying attention to me. <laughs> Boom, <laughs> episode five. <laughs> all right. Um, so I have a really fucking weird relationship with my world building because one, I'm a witch. <laughs> and I take my storytelling very seriously uh, as a craft. And the fact that all of my episodes were uh, facets of myself, um, putting them out, creating them, writing them, creating them, recording them, and then putting, out, putting them out into the world was one level of catharsis. But then I would get actually having to, uh, I think like Jordan said, it was the tip of the iceberg. I had to deal with the shit that I put out. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And that, not only like within myself, all the themes that I tried to bring forward that I wrote about, I had to circle back around once it was created and deal with, the, with those themes on another level. And that, I think, was incredibly valuable for me, not just as a creator, but as a listener and um, when, Eventually, I started bringing on actors. Um, <laughs> and I apologize to some of my actors who actually started, <laughs> to, get, uh, started to get some of that same uh, energy <laughs> where they had to deal with some of the shit that they had to act out. So, the, the yeah, um, I, I apologize ahead of time, Sam. <laughs> one, of my, one of my lovely voice actors is here and also Jordan is is in an upcoming episode so um so many things <laughs> so many things um but yeah the the for me world building is truly a reflection of the multitudes within myself and being able to tap into that catharsis for myself and for other people is truly what makes it exhilarating um when i when when uh, i finally finished um, the final the final episode of my first season, and I listened to it all the way through. It was called Catharsis for a reason. <laughs> and truly having that first bit of art that I put complete out into the world, um, and knowing that there were people who then afterwards responded to it with their own catharsis, truly indicated to me that I'm, I'm doing the work that I want to do in the world. Um, and that for me, again, I have a fucking weird relationship with my storytelling on a very many levels um, as, as, as a witch and someone who really values storytelling as a craft and as a power in the world. Um, during my writer's block, I, the first day I decided I was going to do a media blackout to cure it, I had a dream, and I've shared this with a couple people, and in the dream, I was talking to a group of people, and what I said was, Saying that there are no gods in Neil Gaiman's American Gods is like saying there's no, there's no nuclear material in an atom bomb. <laughs> Storytelling has power, and being able to respect that and seeing, seeing my own work and seeing the work that other people do 
doing the same thing is really powerful to me. And um, that's my favorite part of storytelling is that it matters. Mm. Yeah. yeah, okay. Um, so my question I have known. No, no, I thought George, that George, was George, 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 the beginning. I forgot, I'm sorry. It's perfectly <laughs> fine. I've already shushed James once. So. <laughs> this time I, I was okay, I, Ayla. Thank I you. I James, too. I had to. Yeah. <laughs> you may speak now, James. <laughs> Jordan said it was okay. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I have no intention of answering my own questions, so I'm actually, once I'm done with it, I'm going to kick it this way. <laughs> Only because I've actually answered it a lot of times uh, uh, publicly on other people's like shows and interviews and things like that. So I'm curious about what other people's relationships are with tropes and how you tackle them and in which ways you, you subvert them. Um, either even through sound design, you know, I mean, there, there's lots of tropes that, to tackle and to, and to subvert. Um, and, you know... Whatever, whatever that, whatever you think that is, and, and some of the the ones you like possibly um, tackling the most, or ones you want to tackle that you haven't yet, or something. I think you should answer it. Answer your own question. <laughs> yeah, the mostly to give me a moment James. to think. <laughs> <laughs> I am so sorry. Um, no, you know, I just, I, I, I do, I, I genuinely enjoy uh, subverting uh, the tropes. You know, I like, I like this concept of knowing that. Um, I, you know, I like, because I'm starting off with a character for What's the Frequency that's, you know, he's supposed to be a, a stoic, very sort of typical uh, private eye in, in, a, in a noir setting, um, someone who's likely misogynistic or, um, uh, uh, you know, a heavy drinker, uh, a womanizer, um, usually, uh, you know, exhibiting a lot of bad, poor traits. And one of the things that I decided up front was that he's he's... He's not really any of that. If anything, he's he's much more light and jovial and accessible, and um, he's he's a contrarian. I, you know, I, I thought of him very much like Bugs Bunny or you know yeah. a bit of Groucho Marx or something. You know what I mean? But then like I also threw in a little like Indiana Jones in my head as far as like you know he's constantly just finding himself in tons of, of trouble and and putting himself in way over his head. Uh, so that was basically the the, the premise there. And then I, I, I gave him a a, a female uh, partner that. Um, you know, wasn't there to just make him awesome or anything like that. She's contributing and, and she's very, very strong. She's the muscle and, you know, and they, they don't, they're not there to have sex with each other and they're not, you know, and that, those are things that I, I, I genuinely enjoy sort of like, you know, tackling and, and, and putting it out there and telling you, you, you know, can create your story and make your story without all of these things and these earmarks um, uh, and putting them in place and then, you know, just recycling the same old, Paths that 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 we tend to go through. So I mean that's that's kind of one of the things I, I enjoy doing. Okay. Uh, so hmm. I, I'm gonna answer in two parts again because my life being between two shows is really fucking liminal uh, <laughs> right now. So I mean, uh, Our Fair City is a show with ant people and mole people <laughs> and six or seven mad scientists who are all named after. Uh, classical mad scientists, yes. uh, Dr. Morrow and Caligari and West. Mm -hmm. uh, and with each of them, we tried to do something very strange and different um, that, uh, that took them away from their source material. Uh, Dr. West's story is uh, really about him finding a family. <laughs> Uh, which is not Dr. West's story in <laughs> no, Lovecraft. <it> <laughs> uh, 
so so we took a lot of these very campy B-movie tropes and tried to skew them and play with them and throw them on their heads and use them to talk about some very serious things, like the fact that climate change probably will end the world as we know it, if not in our lifetimes, not too many lifetimes after that. Uh, and that insurance companies really are probably more evil than we've made them in uh, various pieces of our fair city. And I, I, I'm not single out, singling out insurance companies. Really, any large corporation uh, is, in the end, going to be that. So, um, with Unwell, we're doing, uh, in a lot of ways, a very different thing. It is, um, uh, like we said uh, earlier, a show about family both learning how to reconnect with family of blood that you have become distant from and are having to forge new relationships with as an adult and about building found families um, and about being queer in very small rural Midwestern towns. Woo! Uh, yeah, because <laughs> we're there, we exist. Um, and, uh, but a thing that we did starting out was, you know, saying, for instance, with the like queer people in a small Midwestern town, like things are gonna go very badly for our characters, but not because of that, because we've seen that and mm -hmm. we've heard that trope over and over, and and I don't want to hear that right now. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it, it's funny we we talked a lot about um, what we were basing our show on. Um, we joke that our fair city is the middle point between Battlestar Galactica here and Animaniacs here. Um, which is a tightrope. Uh, um, Very specific. Yeah. Accurate, though. Yeah. Um, with, with Unwell, we started out with um, House of Leaves over here and Gravity Falls over yeah. here. Yes. Um, you know, like, deeply disturbing and uncomfortable existential torment and like family solving mysteries. Um, but a thing that I pushed all of our writers to watch some of was Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Um, it's, it's, it's a great show and it has nothing to do with anything we're doing, uh, but they're so good about every time there is an easy answer, an easy character choice, they take a hard left, and we, uh, I think the way we've been working to subvert tropes most, and we'll see if it works, is to any time there is that easy expected answer to say, no, uh, let's get weird with it. Yeah. So. Yeah, I love that. I want that on a t-shirt. Let's, let's get weird with it. Let's get weird with it. Best weird. The best weird. For me, I think it kind of relates back to what I was saying before about trying actively to create messy characters. No character to, that sometimes you have to create the dimension by being this and this. Com, uh, like, how do they contradict each other? How do these features of the characters contradict each other? And I think that because 
you, I have character. We have characters that fit into two very different tropes at the same time, and I think that's what we kind of try to do. It's like we're not completely rejecting the tropes; we're just combining them in weird ways. <laughs> and um, I think that's kind of our goal. Uh, I, I want to also mention I, I, I love the idea of that you can have the same i, <laughs> same idea and like. But just because you have one idea doesn't mean it has to go in one direction. I. I'm actually working on another show that I just started working on. We're trying to pitch for it's an anthology series, and we're giving everyone the same prompt and seeing how everyone interacts with it. And I think that kind of relates to it because I think you have one tro one one prompt, and people might have a certain idea of what the trope about it is. But there's so many different ways of interpreting that prompt, and and I want to see how people reject the tropes that might immediately come to mind, and. So that, that, I mean, that's the whole reason behind this other anthology series that I'm starting up working on. Um, that, um, and so I, I, I don't know what I'm really saying. I, these cocktails are delicious. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, basically that. <laughs> um, I guess I'm going to take this question in two parts. How we subverted tropes in Ars Paradoxica and how the Whisperforge continues to subvert tropes. So in Ars Paradoxica, and I said this earlier at a PodCon panel, but uh, I wrote uh, Ars Paradoxica Season 1, or rather I should say, Daniel Manning, my very good friend, wrote Ars Paradoxica Season 1, and I helped. Um, and it was just the two of us for a whole season, and we are two white people who were uh, assigned male at birth, and we have a lot of biases therein. And... Um, and then we got to the end of a season and we realized how white we had accidentally made our period piece once again. That every period piece that exists only stars white people for some weird ass reason. As though people of color 